This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined from Fakatani by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora, Mawera. Good Sam. How's it going? It's going very well. I am very excited to be reading The Evolution of an Identity Activist and Indigenous Ethnography, Autoethnography. That's so cool. That sounds like somebody should hand that in for a doctorate tomorrow. Oh, I think somebody will. The last push tonight. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I'm like beyond excited. Like, how do you contain the excitement? (laughs) And terrified. (laughs) And who are we introducing today? It is my absolute great pleasure today to introduce Dr. Susan Wardell. She is a a teacher and researcher in social anthropology at Otago University. She's a mum. And she's a writer who publishes uh, creative writing, poetry and other writing. And um, and if you read her list of things that she does on her page, you'd need to take several breaths to get through it all. <laughs> You're a busy lady and a very and such a talented, creative lady. Welcome, Susan. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's so lovely to be here. You're Susan. Where are you, Susan? I'm based in St. Leonard's in Dunedin. Just along, we're in Soyuz Bay, so just along from us. How has, now I have to, I'm going to have to sort out my, what I'm asking here. I was going to say, how is your, how was your bubble life? But we've now (laughs) got two bubble lives in the past. How was your first bubble life last year? Well, it's, um, it is interesting, isn't it, to kind of compare the experiences between the two. Um, And both have had their own kind of flavour and their own pleasures and their own challenges. And so uh, last year was really that that juggle between having two fairly young children at home and um, having work that didn't entirely stop, just kind of expected us to keep going a little bit with it and working out what that looked like or what that felt like as a daily rhythm um, and how to, you know, how to keep the soul alive throughout that. But um, lots of um, lots of nature walks was the highlight around the neighbourhood there. But I've moved house since there, so since then. So second round of lockdown has felt a little bit different. So how did it feel going into lockdown this this time? I think it's a little less scary as an unknown, 
Um, but there's also perhaps a little less novelty than the very first time something like this is announced and you think, oh my goodness, we're living through history and here we go. And there's a little bit more of an adrenaline surge about um, setting everything up. And um, the second time round, there's perhaps a bit more weariness. Um, but personally, I've been really lucky to have, um, we moved somewhere with a big garden and um, that, that little bit less adrenaline has actually been a positive thing in terms of not feeling like I needed to structure the day or meet all the goals, but actually just letting us letting us be as a family in as much as is possible with juggling between um, my husband and I both being on and off our shifts of um, work and with the shifts of caring work with the children too. How old are they? My kids are seven, just about eight in a couple of weeks time and uh, five. So you've been homeschooling? Yeah, well, we we are encouraged by the schools not to call it homeschooling, which is really a, a great kindness because they're trying to communicate that they're not expecting us to suddenly become teachers. Um, so we, we're doing some learning at home, but it's amazing just how organic that process actually can be and that the school provides lots of prompts, but more often than not, we find that what we've been doing anyway, just pottering around and coming up with projects and going along with what they want to do is very similar to the types of things that in primary school that they consider the very best kind of learning, which yes. is <laughs> learning to play, really. <laughs> and you've been working at the same time? Yeah, so the academic clock doesn't stop exactly. Um, the university has also tried to um, show a lot of compassion to students and staff and, you know, reduce deadlines or extend deadlines and things like that. But it really doesn't stop entirely. And probably no one would really want to take a giant pause in there. So there's plenty of things to keep going and that's often just flowing in through emails and through lots of Zoom teaching and learning, which is a very different way of connecting with people, of teaching and learning and um, is quite challenging when you have a particular set of values about what teaching can be and how to connect with people and that can feel very different through a screen, but it's still possible, it just takes a bit of extra effort to get there. Let's take the first of your music choices. Let's have Tiny Ruins. Priest with Balloons, that's a pretty cool title. Or hey, this one. I chose this song because I had actually heard it for the first time very recently. Um, just before lockdown, I went to a little concert that was being um, run with Holly Fulbrook of Tiny Ruins um, as part of the Dunedin International Science Festival under this enormous sculpture of the moon. It was a very evocative evening and it was a bit of a treat to be out without the kids, you know, after dark. And um, it, it was a beautiful song, um, which to me was it kind of conjured up this image of hope and um, Holly who wrote the song shared a little bit about the news story about a police uh, a priest trying to float on these helium balloons to sort of step off a cliff and float into the sky that inspired the song and I think it was such a funny combination of whimsical and strange and hopeful um, that it really captured my attention in quite a way in the moment and then has kind of stuck with me since as often the type of hope we're grabbing for during lockdown is sometimes in things that are, are a bit absurd or strange or small or surreal um, and yet it's that feeling of wanting or yearning towards something and the song really is is about that for me.
regular party size Waves crash on either side He's wearing polypropylene Clutching at straws, holding on to string What was he looking for? Truth? Or was it heaven? Sky is crying 
funny you're talking about school just before our our school the intermediate school that my son jack goes to they refer to homeschooling as bubble school oh that's so, a yeah, nice so kind of got that whimsical feel about it and it's a little bit more fun and yeah and it is what it is well they do what they do which is kind of nice you were talking before about hope and um hope is it just seems at times at the moment to be a little bit in short supply Mm -hmm. uh, especially for our young people who are trying to carve out futures for themselves with so mm -hmm. much uncertainty in, in front of them. And you would be having quite a few um, of young people in your classrooms, I imagine, who, who are really having that struggle. How do we build a bridge over all of these negative things in front of them to the mm -hmm. positive future that they deserve? You know, it's such an interesting topic, hope, because it's often taken as this very flimsy, abstract thing, and yet it can be quite a force. Um, and I, I did end up doing some research, actually, in my work around hope in terms of um, climate change as well, and what it is to have kind of lost a future you imagined, if you're you know, listening to news about what's the work what is happening with anthropogenic climate change and how particular groups of people do respond to that and luckily i'm not in the type of field that has to come up with objective answers but rather to just pay attention and to listen to what, how other groups of people were choosing to live through and respond to that and so i became really interested in hope as something which again this like social scientists like myself have often kind of ignored is not as much of a, not not an easy or focused point of analysis um and yet it can tell us a lot about yeah where people are trying to find that in the near term in nature in the far distant future in so many different ways and i think there is this funny parallel between having done this research not long actually before the pandemic and then seeing now a, an almost similar pattern of people kind of having a future they may have expected snatched away from them and having to relocate hope. But the amazing thing that I find with that, both in terms of the groups I've studied and in terms of people close to me and my students too, is that people do always find somewhere for hope. It just changes, it shifts location. Um, but I guess that's this part of part of human nature expressed in very different ways and different social and cultural settings to to find somewhere to invest your hope but there can also be a lot of loss and grief around that i think it's not an automatic or easy thing so um certainly being you know facing young people as you said um we see a lot of a lot of mental health struggles and a lot of um vulnerability there and an enormous amount of resilience to keep going um but i think it takes time so not expecting people to have just magically rerouted just yet is is okay too can we teach that hope? Is that a teachable thing? Oh, that's a fascinating pedagogical question. Can you teach hope? Well, I'm I'm really passionate about the type of education which is about a whole person, you know, a, not just a brain on a stick, but a person who feels and cares and is a moral and spiritual being as well. So I do think, you know, there's there's an argument that you don't teach hope, but you could teach people 
about the world and about ideas and the types of ways that they can use and fashion for themselves into their own life purpose and usually not just in that kind of siloed way of thinking about the academic but if they can take that and apply that to the things that matter to them in life and what they want to do it I think teaching can give people the tools to make hope but it's yeah it's not a direct thing I wish I could just parcel it out <laughs> it would be nice wouldn't it do you do you think that our kids our young people the young people who are in university at the moment are the ones coming up to university do you think that they they see some sort of positivity in their future or is, is this is it just so big a hurdle to overcome that it's too big for them I think it's really, it's almost too soon to tell, probably even for them. I think we're all in this little bit of a holding pattern at the moment where we've got, um, I guess, a bubble vision, you know, we're thinking about one foot in front of the other. We can see maybe the next step to the next day or the next week. Um, but I, I think it will be over the next few years as this becomes yeah, the new normal um, that we work out, you know, if that is there or what people are going to do with it mm. if we enabled our young people with really solid skills in visioning and change making and imagining would mm. that make the sort of difference that that we need to make for for them to be able to solve the problems because it it's it's their job. We we are coming to the end of our time and mm -hmm. and that this up now. So, what sort of skills do we need to enable them with so that they can go forward and and solve these big problems that we're leaving them with? Really, mm. well, I mean, I think. Um, when you're talking about imagining, I would really agree with that. People have to be able to imagine and dream and think and create. And it's almost letting go of the way we've done it before, where there was the world was a little bit more stable and there were more set processes for how you planned things or changed things. And um, I think we have to go a bit off book maybe and let people dream and imagine. And there are so many places people are already doing that. And I mean, I think the arts is a massive important area for that, to be able to think beyond what was once solid ground um, and respond as it comes and you know, genres like science fiction I've been reading quite a lot of science fiction this time round and locked down and um, you know the vision of of that genre um, to allow people to think about what could be and that includes not just technology but that includes social worlds I think people need that freedom to imagine but unfortunately what that's coupled with often is very material constraints you can't just tell someone go go dream you know they need to have they need to have a stable place to live a healthy home they need to have enough income to support themselves because no one who is strained with the bare basics of life can sit back and dream the best dreams that are gonna you know turn the world in a different direction so we have to pay attention to the concrete and material stuff that enables people to do the big exciting shifts in thinking, which I think that, you know, this generation's entirely capable of it. Absolutely. Just need to give them a chance to do it. So you, you're talking about a new normal. Other people are talking about a return to business as usual. Yes. Where do you see that going? 
Yeah, I mean, I didn't love business as usual, so that's just my <laughs> standpoint. I think, um, you know, it works for a very few people and um, not everyone else. So I think um, it's it depends on your standpoint. You know, there's no one voice that everyone's saying one thing or has one idea. Um, and I guess that's, you know, my training as a social anthropologist is to go go more specific and narrow down and ask what it means for this particular group of people. And the answer might be quite different to the others. So, yeah, it's no surprise at all that there are particular people who would just really love it to go back to the type of world we have been in that was working beautifully for them and a great deal more people um you know, the 99%, which will actually link to my second song choice, um, which uh, for which a change is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, and of course, there's a lot of privilege also in being able to say, let's shake up the world, let's let's change things. Um, because again, taking that kind of, of risk to redo things, um, you need a bit of stability and a bit of a safety net um, while things are changing as well. Um, and yet it's an amazing opportunity. And these kind of these dual forces, which we often notice when we're studying the social world in my field, which are continuity and change, that things change and people have to change with it. And sometimes that's such a painful thing and a lot of people can be lost and harmed in the process. But then there's also a pull to the status quo and the norm, um, not as a kind of neutral, natural force either, you know, quite a directed thing from powerful institutions. Um, but the way that that pans out at times like this, when there really is a chance to pull away from the norm, I think a lot of people, myself included, just kind of hold our breath and ask, could this be a time when we make things just that bit better, where we had the opportunity? Um, and it, it doesn't always happen. Sometimes it's disappointing to see things just ping back like elastic. Um, and yet there, there'll be a bit of both, I guess, naturally. Hopefully we'll see some forward movement too. You're talking about how much we rely on stability and and the certainty that that brings us. But one of the things that is certain about a pandemic is that uncertainty. Yes. I, I get frustrated when the Prime Minister is asked, can you give us the date when this is going to happen? And I, you can just see her eyes sort of like going, I just want to like, this is a global pandemic. We don't know when that's going to be. Do we have to mm, it actually looks back to the question of hope in some interesting ways because when I was looking at hope among these um, eco-aware citizens, um, then the, it was very much seen as something which um, was related to uncertainty, like hope can only happen if you have a kind of question mark, a space of uncertainty. And so um, hope can be quite a, a painful thing because it means that you don't know. So it's it's a little counterintuitive, but for particular groups that I was looking at responding to climate change, they would rather have known the bad news and set the timeline of what was going to happen and when it was going to happen and um, how it was going to affect people. They would rather have that certainty so they could plan their lives and how to live than they would have hope, question mark, but we might be okay at the end of it. Um, and so it was really interesting to study a group that was kind of rejecting hope. Um, but I think in this circumstance, um, it's a little bit similar. People are really wanting to know the nitty gritty details, which aren't just aren't possible to lock in, but which we're trying to lock in. Um, but the space where possibilities come from that 
is, um, yeah, it's not straightforward. One of the challenges of climate change, for example, is that it doesn't start next Tuesday. Mm. And so it, it is something and, – and I've had lots of discussions with people over the years about would it be a good thing if we could say it does because it does and it has and we just let that Tuesday roll on past and nothing changes. Mm. Whereas for the pandemic, they were able to say we have to do this by Wednesday afternoon. The country is shutting mm. down. What lessons do you think we can take for those bigger sorts of questions like climate change or, or social justice or biodiversity collapse <laughs> that we perhaps can't fix by going and by, by staying at home for a while? Mm, it's an interesting one, and I mean, it's not. It's not new. Voices like Greta Thunberg have been asking us to go into that kind of emergency mode, a whole different modus operandi, which is what we are experiencing in New Zealand um, as part of the pandemic. And there's particular social forces around that of experiencing ourselves as a collective in a new way, as a team of five million, um, which has, has pros and cons to looking at us at, that way. Um, but it's it's something which doesn't, you're right, it doesn't work as well with something like climate change, which is this more slow, abstract, intangible violence, depending on where you're placed in the world and how you might witness that in your own world. But I think the the idea of um, of emergency being called upon, a lot of people have said that that's not great, like no one can live in that state happily and healthily for a long time. Um, but it can be it can be a way to rally people, I guess, on an emotional level or an affective level. And I think we think about ourselves as rational beings an awful lot post enlightenment in the Western world, and um, and we're really we're much bigger than that, and we have to feel our way through things like that. And I think helping people to feel the abstract things like climate change is important um, to make it feel present and tangible and I think that hugely that's again where art can come in where artists and creators um, are involved in bringing those things to life and bringing them right into people's living rooms and making them stand up and say yes I'll do what needs to be done for this just as is happened with the pandemic. And so in New Zealand's experience of COVID, it's been quite different to some places in the world because here our experience of the pandemic hasn't typically been that we have friends or neighbours or loved ones hospitalised or dying, but actually our sense of what the pandemic is has come through press conferences, graphs, images, cartoons, and so it, it's not that dissimilar to climate change in that way. It had to be made real. It had to be communicated to us. And it was effectively. And it became real. And we felt the sense of emergency. And we've done what needed to be done for that and um, with amazing outcomes. And so I think humans are capable through, again, through imagining through these abstract processes of bringing something which is enormously big, enormously complex, enormously slippery, um, right up to, you know, close enough to grab hold of and say, I'm going to do this. <laughs> Let's do this. Yeah. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokunui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mihi aroha nui kia koutou, ko tahohau. I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. I really hope 
wherever you are and whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining and illuminating for you more and more each day. Who you are, a triumph of nature's art, perfect, unique and here making things better. Thank you. Now I know for us all we've been through a very difficult time over the last more than a year and for me being part of the show has helped me immeasurably and I'm so grateful to Sam and the whole Blown Bubbles team for having me. To all of you, thank you. As we head now of course into lockdown Delta 2, level 2, out of lockdown, it is a new time for us and it is a time for us to really... I feel reconsider how we interact because of course we are going to have to interact so differently and something that of course we have co-evolved with all life in an infinite web to be able to do is respond to very fine facial expressions and for all of us we are experiencing reality completely uniquely and this is a wonderful gift that our consciousness brings but we have generally agreed upon some basic facial cues that we all understand. And this is a language. Now part of this language is going to be obscured, of course, because we'll be smiling behind our masks in many indoor locations. And I think this means that it's so important that our words and the words that we choose, the power of the words that we choose, is acknowledged at this time. And as we know, it's not only the words themselves, but how we choose to say them. And not only how we choose to say them, but when we choose to say them. And who we choose to say them to. I know that for many of us we love poetry because it brings to life for us worlds that we couldn't have imagined before. But which when we hear poetry, we remember this world. It seems familiar all of a sudden. And of course this is the power of words and I really hope that for all of you in this time you have had some time for you to creatively respond to this very difficult situation as we know as a species many of our greatest triumphs have come from having to innovate having to change having to grow and transform being tempered in the crucible of these difficult hard times so I hope that for you over this time you're able to find solace in a sense that we will always need the comfort of interaction. We will always need the comfort of communication and we will always enjoy the power and the majesty of the worlds we can create with our words and the sense of homecoming, the sense of reunion, the sense of understanding that we can also create with how we use those words, when we use those words, and who we choose to share those words with. I know at this time it's particularly important that we do keep in touch with our loved ones all over the world who are having a hard time, and think about the words that would particularly soothe them and help them to remember who they are, how strong they are. And of course we can do this for the worlds within ourselves. As we all know, there are myriad people within us all, different aspects of ourselves, different facets that we bring forward at different times. And also many memories that we cherish and that we understand ourselves by. So if we can use 
helpful language to invoke these at this time, to comfort these at this time. I think this is a beautiful new poetry which will emerge from this pandemic. And thank you all for having me, and I'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much. Kakiti. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Susan Wardell. Susan, before we had Tahu come in there, you were talking about the messaging around the, the, the pandemic. One of the big messages we've had is be kind. Why do you think that's been so mm-hmm. successful? I think um, kindness and gentleness is is a human thing. We all needed to be wrapped in a soft blanket because things were hard. And um, that's something which there's, there's always a place for. Um, I think a politics of kindness always has to be tempered with a bit of a critical eye as well. Like We have to be able to ask questions hard questions and look at the way that choices, even the right choices in policy can affect people in uneven ways. Um, So I think kindness was an easy thing to grab onto and a good thing to grab onto and something I support. But when I think about kindness, I can't help but just throw in the reminder there that kindness is a great thing that we all need all the time. Um, But there are steps above and beyond that, that when we have given each other the warm hugs, given ourselves the warm hugs that we need, um, and done the little warming things that we need to um, to take us through this time that we also need to keep asking the bigger questions as well about um, who's affected and in what ways by even the right choices around the pandemic. The well-being concept, of course, has been around in academic circles for a while now, but it, this government really brought it to the fore in the budget a couple of years ago, four or five years ago now. But I, I got the impression that people said well that's very nice now show me the money and in this <laughs> in this pandemic it really has shown that well-being can actually be a basis for for policy and for decisions but it needs to be something which we we do for for everybody one of the things that i know has upset my my, my daughter phoebe who works in disability is mm-hmm. that that question of the the underlying conditions that sort of notion that oh it's okay because they had an underlying condition they were going to die anyway Mm. but in almost all cases they probably weren't Mm. it's um yeah you've hit on something which is quite important to me as well and uh, like a lot of academics my research during the pandemic got rerouted a little bit to study covid because a lot of what i look at is health and well-being and social ideas about that, you know, why we value what we value and who we value. So I was studying um, medical crowdfunding, which I have a Marsden grant to study um, within a New Zealand context. And so suddenly um, my initial research phase of this was happening during lockdown last year. And so I ended up thinking and writing about what it does mean to be ill or chronically ill or disabled during a global pandemic and how there are these competing needs when not everyone has the same um, access to what they need and where a lockdown policy affects people differently and that that great way of putting it that I like to come back to about you know we're not all in the same boat we're all in the same sea but we're often in very different boats some people are on super yachts and some people are in rickety dinghies and so some of the stories that I was witnessing looking at these crowdfunding campaigns were really the people who were out there on the the rickety dinghy and most of them were you know fantastically positive about lockdown and being um, important and you know wanting to adhere to this very positive framework of the team of five million um, at the same time as they were 
quite clear in their stories that it was affecting them in much greater ways than it was some other people, especially to have um, healthcare systems and healthcare delivery rapidly changed as well as limited social support. So I think, well, yeah, well-being is not a one-size-fits-all. It's not a matter of giving everyone the same. It's a matter of giving everyone what they need. And there are enormously different needs from different people, groups and communities. And um, it's, 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 you know, more, more is good. I'm all for the well-being budgets. And I think the more we can do that, because sometimes it's called a well-being budget, but it's still a little bit narrow in the focus. And um, a lot of what I was seeing was that, yes, people's medical bills were covered, but maybe they couldn't cover rent or childcare while they were ill, for example. So the more we go back to the things we often reference, like Te Whare Tapa in the house of four walls and seeing well-being as this holistic thing, the more we make the money side match that, the better, because we're, we're still only really funding a part of that and we need more is good. <laughs> Let's take the second of your music choices. Let's have Vienna Tang level up. Why this one? Well, firstly, of course, it's for the pun value. So um, it seemed very appropriate um, as we're thinking about, well, leveling down now, hopefully. Um, but the second reason is that um, Vienna Teng's an artist I love, an American singer-songwriter, um, and a lot on this particular album is kind of to do with like collective experience and collective activism and what it means to be part of something bigger than yourself. Um, and so I like this song and that it was kind of, it's upbeat and it's encouraging and it's kind of asking people to do more, but not in a way, not in the same way of business as usual in terms of work harder and be more productive, but in a different way of kind of looking around and seeing, um, as the song says, that we all have scenes and scars. Um, let's level up in terms of, I guess, going deeper or going differently rather than just more of the same. So it really inspired me in terms of the idea of yeah, collective action. So come out You have been waiting long enough You're done with all the talk, talk, talk And nothing on the table It's time to come on out There will be no sign from above You'll only hear the knock, knock, knock Of your own heart signal if you are free
We've seen lots of levelling up of society in the last year and a half, lots of changes at a societal level. What do you think is going to stick? And perhaps more importantly, what do you hope will stick? I was certainly hoping for um, a universal um, benefit uh, sort of thing. That would have been good, just to be very specific. Um, In terms of like the wider social changes, I hope that the slower rhythms of life will stick a little bit. I think that's good for everyone. And that certainly was very affecting for me um, as academia is often incredibly um, fast paced and competitive and intense um, to have a slightly slower rhythm in my own life to actually look around the world and work out what I liked about this world that I was living in. And it certainly just shifted my perspectives I guess on um, on activism as well um, from something I had maybe had more of as a child just connecting with the natural world and just purely loving it to shifting into a phase of my life where for many years it felt just like activism because it was the right thing to do and never mind what was this big old world that I was trying to save after all and it gave me that moment to kind of um, to be and I, I think that's essential for anyone and anything we're trying to do and as much as we want to work to make the world better um, we have to be in love with the world that we're trying to protect and preserve and that includes our natural world and that in- also includes um, the people around us and so I think this upswelling of of kindness and compassion um, has been something I would love to see continue with that little caveat that I mentioned before of not sort of seeing everyone as a great big hole, but noticing that the people we're trying to show kindness to or love have different needs and different experiences. But if that can continue on, that would be um, an enormous shift in consciousness that could have any number of other Um, shifts and changes that come out of it, including in terms of policy and governance and social organisation and just about anything. Do you think we'll see a a fingerprint or a a layer in the the, the virtual fossils of COVID in terms of how society operates? Yeah, I think there's um, there's shifts both obvious and subtle um, and both positive and negative that will be there as markers and I mean it's 
it's not even a, historians a hundred years from now that'll be able to uncover those. But I think people are fairly aware and reflexive and already talking about this is what are, what are we and who are we and what is this new world we're stepping into? And um, I'm sure more will be clear as we go further on, but there's, there's no turning back really. We're the priest with the balloons. We're one foot off the cliff. And I know we all want to float and I think it's given us a chance to imagine a little bit um, and imagining the scary things, imagining the drop and imagining the beautiful possibilities for that um, and the hard thing is just living with one foot off the cliff and not really knowing what's ahead um, which is where the kindness comes in I guess um, but it's it's the history we're living through no doubt. I do like that notion of us having to be, uh, do we have to be comfortable with living one foot off the off the cliff interesting one too isn't it yeah comfort isn't always good and that sounds like poetry to me have you been (laughs) have you been writing you know i haven't written very much at all in this lockdown i write consistently in my life through all sorts of things through doing a phd running a business volunteer work having babies and yet when it's come to lockdown when you'd think that all was peaceful, um, perfect time for writing. I have not been able to write. And, you know, the most wonderful thing is to be able to just say that's okay. You know, sometimes we go through cycles of absorbing and just living and being, and I've enjoyed just being, you know, noticing the things that are happening with the turning of the season in my garden and the different moods of light on the harbour at different times of day and, you know, very trite things, but they become very meaningful to you when that's what you have there in your bubble with you. And I think I'm sure that all of that that I'm absorbing will come out in writing again soon. At least I hope so. Always come back to that hope. Um, But for now, I've been reading and being. I have some questions to end the show with. What is the Uh biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? The biggest success? Oh, gosh, that's too tricky. Um, uh, I don't know, becoming a gardener maybe? I don't know if I can say I've really become a gardener yet, but, I mean, I've done pretty well with my academic career and my writing, and um, but I try not to focus too much on that because, because it's it's really just things on a piece of paper at the end of the day. Um, and what I've felt has changed me more is... Um, you know, learning to work in the garden and with the earth and get outside my comfort zone and pick up new skills with that. I'm just at the very start of learning, I should say. But um, but I really have loved that and been proud of that as a success. <laughs> so we're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our mm. team of people doing good work. So you are in that team. What is the superpower that's got you into the mansion? Oh, superpower. Um, I guess I could just say caring. (laughs) A lot of things come down to care is a big nebulous term, but um, it connects a lot of the different parts of my life. Um, Mothering, of course, teaching, which I never really planned to fall in love with, but I did, head over heels. And um, my research, which is so much about care and, you know, with an idea that hopefully I'm researching things that matter and uh, make the world a little better and, yeah. Can I leave it at that very abstract idea? You can indeed. Okay. So so do you consider yourself to be an activist? Um, yeah, I would like to say yes. What that looks like to me in my life has changed a lot over the years. And certainly as I moved into a place where my 
uh, professional career um, in academia became more of a focus and I was doing less community activism, I really had to grapple with had I lost something that really mattered to me um, or that you know was important to the world. But as I began to see that my, my work and my purpose and my service could be fulfilled through um, through education, then I began to see that as part of the same ethos I'd always wanted to follow and also parenting. Um, I, I would have to say that that is an aspect of activism because you're working on shifting the world that you live in for the people you love most and also through the people that you love most, you know, raising people who are going to keep on with all the things that matter. So I hope I'm still an activist in those different ways. I would love to be. And writing, of course. So what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? I I like to notice things and I like to I like to listen and I like to be heard. I guess the dual pull of humans. I, I really um, I love to write in many different forms and being able to have a voice and being seen as an, a human and feeling like you have some sense of agency in the world, um, that gets me out of bed. I'm hugely privileged in having come to a point in my life where I have in different minor ways platforms to put my ideas out into the world. Um, but I also, on the flip side, I really like to listen to other people, other humans, and the different ways that they live and experience the world. And um, that is endlessly fascinating. So that gets me out of bed as well. And what challenge or opportunity are you looking forward to in the next year or so? Uh I'm looking forward to some of the upcoming phases of my research, which are very much based on case studies and interviews, whereas uh, a lot of what I had been doing for a little while there was more about analysing things online. And now I get to talk to real people. Um, I'm, I'm very introverted and I'm also neurodivergent. So um, I'm actually quite terrified of talking to people at times. So this is both exhilarating and terrifying. But, um, but it, in my career to date, that's been something which has shaped me more than anything else is just getting to sit with people and, um, and hear their stories and become the bearer of those stories. That's enormous privilege and similar to what you're doing with this podcast um, but I am looking forward to this phase of my research where I get to gather more stories um, and pull them together and be part of sharing them with the world. And lastly do you have any advice for our listeners? Uh, be gentle be very very gentle with yourself and with your hopes and with your expectations at the stage we're in a strange liminal stage and that's okay if you don't know what is coming or what you'll do or what will be done around you to reshape the world. Um, time will pass one way or another. Um, and I think we, we're okay. We're, we're humans who care. Like we've got good people everywhere who care and who have ideas and who have plans. And we will be okay, but it's not going to happen all at once. So just just wait. Hope. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that. Moira. Oh, I just want to say, Susan, that was really amazing, actually, really informative. And the work that you do matters so much. Hope is in short supply. And it, now we need hopeful people more than ever, especially people who have got the ability to impart that hope and those skills of creating hope into the lives of our young people. 
I just want to say thank you. Thanks for all the work that you do and keep up the good work. Thanks for joining thank us. Thank you so much for having me, letting me have a ramble about so many things that matter. It's been a pleasure to be here. around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We are broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. And this is Alex Turner, Stuck on the Puzzle. With Mwira Karatai in Fakatani, and we've been joined by Susan Waddell in St. Leonard's. That was Blowing Bubbles. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.